Father, we praise you because you are simply worthy. And all God's people said, amen. Now that was worship. You guys did a much better job this, this morning. Good job, all right? Now, before we dive in, I will send out very soon, uh, probably later today, last week in this week's sermon, because there was a lot of requests for this last week, and we'll finish up talking about the Garden of Eden, okay? You guys enjoying this series so far? Yes. Good, good. Let's dive right in then to Genesis chapter 2, 8 through 17. We'll finish up talking about what the Garden of Eden was like. While you're going there and finding it, let me pray for our time this morning. Heavenly Father, would you speak through me to glorify yourself? You know, as I've taught, and I am praying that you might be glorified. It is not about me, it is about you. So teach us, grant us a deeper appreciation of you. In your name we pray, amen. So in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8 of Genesis, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Pretty self-explanatory, but we get some tremendous insights into uh, Eden and a little bit more about what it was like. Um, and it was very encouraging and exciting to prepare this sermon. I hope you're encouraged and excited about what we're going to learn this morning. Before I begin, I want to take you back to when we talked about this in the creation of the six days. Now, I'll explain this in a minute here, but this is what we guess that the first earth was like before the flood. It looked sort of something like this, okay? Remember, there was a second day God created what? Light the first day, the second day, the heavens. Now, how did he do that? He took the water, cut the water. It was all surrounded in the matter in the earth, in the, surrounded by water. He took some of the water, cut it out, and just expanded it and created this, okay, the existing atmosphere. And then if you can see, there's supposed to be a little blue line around here. That's what we call the water that separates the, from above the earth and the water that is in the earth. And there's a theory called the water vapor canopy theory that we went over uh, some while ago. Now, you may be un not know what is the 
Pangaea. Well, this is interesting. According to evolutionists, Pangaea, or Gia, however you say it, it was a supercontinent that existed during the late Paleozoic and early Mesozoic eras, approximately 335 million years ago. I reject that completely. Both evolutionists, though, and creationists agree on this, and it's based upon fossil evidence and other stuff, that the earth originally was one big landmass. So you do need to know that. We all are in agreement on that. The difference is how it came into being, that God created in six days, roughly 6,000, 8,000 years ago, which is what the Bible teaches. Or, as evolution teaches, it evolved over millions of years. The second thing that we disagree on is how it split apart into our current earth. Either through a cataclysmic event, such as a worldwide flood, or, as evolution says, through a gradual breakup over time. Now, I want you to look at this map, okay? This is what we believe this landmass, this supercontinent looked like. Now, what, what's this? Our current Earth. See this? Look at these. See how they all just kind of fit together? You see that? This could kind of slide in here. This would kind of go over there. It was all big one place that probably looked, we guess, something like this. Okay? But I want to start with that because now we're going to talk about trees. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, they believe that the way this is written, they were in the middle of the garden, these two trees. Okay. Now, even though Adam was given dominion over the earth, and what an earth it must have been, God decided he needed a home, so he plants a garden in the east called Eden and placed him there. Okay. By the way, if you go back to this right here, if this is true, and we don't know, you really can't prove it either way. If there was a canopy of water that went around this, the planet, or Earth, then that would have made the Earth sort of like a greenhouse. And that would have made all of the vegetation and trees grow. You've been to a greenhouse, it's where we go and buy, what, flowers and trees and so on. It would have been that type of environment. There would have also not been a whole... A, a need for a lot of wind in different seasons and so on and so forth. So this would have been a, an ideal environment for life to thrive, in essence. Okay? So, God plants a garden and places man there. Now, the word Eden, it can mean one of two things. A place that is well watered throughout is one definition. Or it can mean pleasure or delight. Now, as we learned last week from Genesis 13.10, when Lot looked over the, the, the valley and he looked at the land, and what did he say? It was well watered, and the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. Okay? So we know that the defining characteristic back in the time of Genesis was that the garden of Eden was well watered. And so if you take both words, we, would, we can now say it's well watered and it's a place of pleasure or delight, we say that God made a special garden for Adam. Now listen to this. 
that serves as his home for his joy or delight. So he has a well-watered, lush garden for his pleasure, for his joy, for his delight. And that tells you a little something about God, doesn't it? Now, this garden, as you look at the text, is unique for several reasons. Number one, it only contained trees that were pleasing to the sight. You see that? In other words, you would not have this tree there. This is my mother-in-law's favorite tree. It's called a boojum tree, and it's not her favorite tree, and so I'm joking here. It's in Phoenix, Arizona, and ironically, I think this is in a desert, but it's called a boojum tree. To me, that is an ugly tree. I would not want to see that in my lawn, would you? No, not at all. Okay. Instead, it would have had, Garden of Eden would have had something like this. This is a trumpet tree, if I, if I named it correctly. This is a separate little tree here, but that's pretty to look at. And by the way, I chose this picture because it's well-watered. See that? A well-watered tree. Secondly, this garden is unique. It only contained trees that were good for food. See that? So there obviously there were trees that didn't produce food in the original creation, but there were trees that did. So, for example, it would have been full of something like this. This is a, the best picture I could find of what? What is that? An apple tree. That's a pretty full apple tree. That may even be in Washington, for all I know, this picture. Or this. Oranges, okay? An orange tree. Thirdly, the garden is unique, is that it contained two supernatural trees. These two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were fruit-bearing trees that had supernatural properties. If you eat of the fruit of the tree of life, you will live forever. Think about that. This is why Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were banned from the garden. And this is interesting. Verse 22 and 23 of chapter 3 says this, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So apparently this tree of life is so powerful. Just think about this. It could give eternal life to a fallen person who is completely corrupted by sin. So if I put it another way, it could overcome the decay and disease and physical death caused by sin on the body. It didn't make your soul live forever. That was never dealt with, but it could make you physically live forever. And so can you imagine being a fallen sinner, a corrupt person living forever? That would be one sorrowful life. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it had fruit that somehow came to be thought of as what? An apple. Whenever you hear the story, whenever you, right? You see Eve eating what? An apple. Now, we don't, there's nothing in the text that leads us to draw such a conclusion. We don't have any idea or any idea of what kind of fruit it produced. But we know it was a good tree, since everything in the original creation was good. 
So there's nothing harmful in the tree itself, but eating from it was harmful because eating from it produced the experiential knowledge of evil. Now, man already knew good. He was in the garden. And he had a basic understanding of evil because Eve knew when she was being tempted by the serpent that it was an evil tree. So there's a basic understanding of evil. But they would know evil, man and woman, and die if they disobeyed God's command and ate from the fruit of this tree. This means that this tree was not only was supernatural, it brought a deeper knowledge of evil and the experience of death, but it was also a test. So in the garden, there was a test. So in the whole, here's the point, in the whole created earth and in this magnificent Garden of Eden, there's just one test. Think about that. You can be late for something and have to leave church, and people are in your way as you are driving out of the parking lot. And in your heart, you can be complaining about them. Well, you just failed that test. Then you got to get on the road and say, you're speeding because you want to be there on time, and you've broken that law, you've broken that test. You get behind some slow driver and road rage kicks in. You failed that test in a matter of five minutes. Three tests you failed. In the Garden of Eden, there was just one test. Think about that. Just one test. Now, let's talk about this. This is what we all want to know about anyways, the location of the Garden of Eden. Sorry, verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. The gold of that land is good. Bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Folks, that is pretty detailed, isn't it? Let's take a look at this. The question, of course, we all want to ask is, well, where is the Garden of Eden? What does the text say? Well, it's in the east. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, there's a couple of thoughts. Uh, first of all, we don't know where the Garden of Eden was. We don't. As I showed you earlier, we're living in a, a post-flood earth with different land masses. See? This was where it would have been if this was a supercontinent. This is totally different. Okay? I think this is where we are. Yeah. And even though the rivers mentioned in chapter 2 of Genesis, the Euphrates and Tigris, are they still around today? We do not know if they're in the same location. They were in the pre-flood earth. We don't know. Secondly, most theologians speculate that in the east, the text says, it's very vague, but as God does throughout the Bible, he views the world from the vantage point of his promised land, as he consistently does throughout the Bible, then we would interpret in the east as Eden is toward the east of Israel. That is the, the prevailing theory amongst theologians, and this is our best guess, and so this is, we'll have this up here for a while. Here is our 
here's a current map of the Middle East. Can you see that? That is as big as I can make it and fit on the screen. You probably can't see it that well. Right here is Israel. See it right here? Here's Egypt, Sudan. You want to remember Ethiopia. Okay. And what we're going to see is, well, I won't ruin it for you. We'll get to it. Now, you are going to have to turn your Bibles. This will take you a while. Go to uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Because we still need more information about Eden from the Bible to make an educated guess about where Eden, particularly its size and its properties. And fortunately for us, the Bible does give us some more clues. In Ezekiel chapter 28, okay? Ezekiel 28. So get your phone or your Bible out or whatever, or your tablet. Starting in verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, saying, the son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You're in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was yours, was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were, even, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now, obviously, it's plain to see when you read this that God is having the prophet Ezekiel speak about not speak about, that is, the actual king of Tyre, but somebody else behind him. And you know who that is. It's Lucifer, the fallen angel, who's now called Satan. The king of Tyre, was he ever actually in the Garden of Eden? No, he was not. But we know that who was there in the Garden of Eden? Lucifer was in the form of a serpent. Now, what do these verses tell us about Eden? Though we learn that this garden was not only a garden with abundant plants and beautiful trees and, and an overabundance of food, but it was also a garden overflowing with minerals. Every precious stone that was associated with the beauty of Lucifer, the fallen angel, was there in the original creation. You see that? The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, all of those. And there's a special emphasis on the gold that was there. Ladies, does that excite you? <laughs> all that jewelry, all those precious stones, they were there in abundance. Okay? There's also the mention of the mountain of God, and it's mentioned twice. And it very well could be that it was a mountain loaded with beauty and riches beyond comparison. 
How valuable is land today that is full of diamonds or of gold? Pretty valuable. Now, go three chapters ahead to Ezekiel 31. Learn even more about Eden. Starting in verse 2. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade, and very high. Its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow. The deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place, and sat on its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its bows became many and its branches long because of many wonders as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its bows and under its trees all the beasts of the field gave birth and all great nations lived under its shade. So it was beautiful in its greatness and the length of its branches for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypress could not compare with its bows. The plane trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with, with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches, and all the trees of Eden which were in the garden of God were jealous of it. Now, in order to understand this passage, you have to understand a few things, okay? God is pronouncing judgment on Assyria, but he starts with Pharaoh, and he's using sarcasm and irony, and hyperbole, and simile. And he begins talking about how great Assyria was. That's verses 3 through 7. But if you look at verse 8, the sarcasm really picks up. He says, no tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. In other words, he's saying, Assyria, you were so magnificent and beautiful that no tree in the garden of Eden could compare to you in splendor and appearance. I mean, he is laying the sarcasm on thick because it's a fallen world and Eden was an unfallen world where there were no phones that came on when I was preaching <laughs> that's okay but this verse tells us that Eden had what now what did it have what kind of trees did it have cedars cypresses and something called what a plane tree Sarcastically, the Lord gives us a glimpse of Eden, that it was full of these various kinds of trees, and they were absolutely magnificent. Now, you can travel about two to three hours from here. The world's largest, what is it, sycamore tree? Is that what it is? Now, I, let's just assume then that, and it's, it's massive. I know that you could probably, it is, as, is it as wide as this, this, these pews or wider? It's huge, Okay. I can imagine that may be a normal-sized tree in the Garden of Eden, okay? So these massive, magnificent, towering trees populated the Garden of Eden because they were the best trees, pleasant to look at, full of, of food. Now, let's take a, look, a closer look at the actual location of the Garden of Eden. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. So it's a place full of magnificent big trees, cedars and cypresses and a plane tree. It's full of gold, diamonds, bedillium, onyx stones, all of that stuff. It's just full of all of that, okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. 
Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. And again, we can see why Eden was called a well-watered place, but this is a, quite a detailed account of the water supply in this garden that flowed up from the subterranean water sources to produce this great river. Again, I remind you, there was no rain at this time in the earth. Everything was, was watered from below, this text says that we learned last week. And it produces this great river, this flow coming from underground springs. It comes up, it goes through the garden, thoroughly watering it, while also creating surface water in the form of a great river. And that river divides and becomes four rivers. So this is a massive flow of water. Now, this river from Eden must have been immense because you're about to find out that the Garden of Eden is huge. This is not some backyard garden that we think of when we say a garden. This massive flow of water coming from Eden becomes four large and long rivers and that perhaps they flow down from the mountain of God and eventually make it to the sea and then back down through subterranean channels and then resurface again the headwaters of the fountain of the main river in Eden and continue to flow out through these four rivers. Folks, for as long as these rivers ran is as large as Eden is. Okay? So, the four rivers are in two groups. The Pishon and Gihon, and the second group is the Tigris and Euphrates. Like verse 11 and 13. Name the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Bedillium and the Onyx stone are there. Let's stop right there. This gives us some more indication of the location of Eden. Now, it says that the Pishon flowed around the land of Havilah. And Havilah is a land that is mentioned among the sons of Joktan in Genesis chapter 10 and 1 Chronicles chapter 1. This is a part of the sermon that you're going to have to stay awake and stay technical with me, okay? So we're trying to give us a location here with our current map. The name Pishon is also mentioned in Genesis 10, 7 and in 1 Chronicles 1. And Pishon is also named as one of the sons of Cush. And we know the land of Cush and the land of Joktan are also associated with a place called Ophir. And guess what Ophir is known for? Gold. There is gold. In these lands, the land of Cush and the land of Joktan and so on, the land of Ophir, have usually been identified as lands to the south of Israel and south of the Mesopotamian Valley, the valley today that we know of as Iraq and Iran, and even down to Saudi Arabia. So the garden, the river, here's Israel. It's flowing down, and these rivers are going in different directions, okay? It's going all the way over to here, okay? And you'll find out it's going to go all the way down to here and even into Saudi Arabia. So this gives you an idea. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll learn about why I'm I'll circling Saudi Arabia of the size that we think of the Garden of Eden. Folks, that is one home. One home. Home for man, for Adam and Eve. 
So to say God is generous is a bit of an understatement. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? And what did he fill that place with? Again, what's there? All kinds of life, fruits and vegetables, towering trees, riches and minerals and everything, okay? That's Adam's home. Okay, now, as I said earlier, Joktan, okay, is related to Ophir. Ophir is a place mentioned many times in the Bible, First Kings and First Chronicles and Job and Psalms and Isaiah. And Ophir is always associated with gold. And there are some Bible scholars who put it near the kingdom of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. And that, we know, is located in the southwestern part down by Saudi Arabia, toward, moving toward Egypt. So it's obviously down over in this area. Okay? And that, again, when you think of Ophir, what do you think of? Gold. So there could be, coming out of the garden, just east of Israel, and of course this is obviously, what? This way. West, east, okay? On the eastern border of Israel, this great river, Pishon, flowing down. It would form a river that flows to the south until it connects at some point with the Nile River, we believe. And the Nile River was where? Right here. So here's Israel, and it's flowing down this way. Okay? And further identifying this land is gold. And the quality of this gold is unmatched. It says the gold of the land is good. And as I said earlier, the gold of Ophir was synonymous with the best gold. Now, I won't have you go there, but you may want to write this down. 1 Kings 9, 28, it just says this. They went to Ophir, O-P-H-I-R, and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Well, how much gold is 420 talents? That is 16 tons. They took 16 tons of gold to Solomon. And so this tells us the kind of world God made. It's just full of richness and abundance. And in this area where the Pishon River went was also Bedellium. Bedellium is a word that refers to a collar, but originally it was gum resin used as a fragrance. So not only was the Garden of Eden beautiful to look at, but also pleasant to smell. The onyx stone is mentioned as being in the garden. This is familiar to us because it's a gem used in the garment of the high priest. And so far we've talked about one river, the Pishon, that proceeds down into these various lands where God had deposited great wealth and beauty in his creation, and that is the home of Adam and Eve. So we're beginning to see the size of the Garden of Eden. And wherever these rivers went is within the realm of the garden. Now the second river is Gihon, or Gihon, we would say it. It flows around the land of Cush. And some would suggest that Cush is now modern Ethiopia, which is down here. So now we're beginning to see the size of the garden. Look at verse 14. The name of the third river is Tigris, 
It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, this river flows east of Assyria. Again, using this map, where is Assyria? Well, it was over here, Syria. You see? Going this way, east of Israel. And it goes from the garden uh, northwest to southeast. So it's starting here and going down this way, northwest to southeast. So the Pishon and Gion rivers flow south and southwest, and the Tigris is going northwest to southeast. The Euphrates is also mentioned, but nothing is said about it. It runs parallel to the Tigris and empties into the Persian Gulf. You can kind of see it, well, kind of on this map, you would see it, there'd be right around here, there's these rivers, but anyway, they didn't want to give you too much, it might be right here. But you get the idea here. Again, uh, we don't, we cannot compare any current rivers with the pre-flood rivers, but they do give us a picture of the size of this massive garden, and it was overflowing again with riches. It was a vast garden of abundant water and beautiful trees and flourishing plants and just an overabundance or a plethora of food. It was a garden filled with finest gold and precious stones, all for man's joy and delight. And this is why I say, and you've heard me say it before, I say it again, it, it's never God's design for man to be poor. And so we can now see that that's what God had planned for man in his original creation as he lived in sinless communion with his creator. Because of the riches of the Garden of Eden, it is speculated, and this I think you'll find fascinating, that if the Middle East region is where the Garden of Eden was, and if crude oil is, as most scientists believe, primarily what? Decayed vegetation and animal matter, that stands to reason that the Middle East is where we would find the greatest oil deposits. And many people speculate that the vast stores of oil in the Middle East are the result of the decomposition of Earth's luscious organic materials in the Garden of Eden. And obviously, where is oil located? <laughs> Saudi Arabia. So it's just another evidence that some say points to the fact that this could be the location, this area right here, of the Garden of Eden. Again, we think of a garden, we think of a backyard garden. No, 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 this was way bigger. But man was not created just to sit back and enjoy God's abundance. He also had to work. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, this is just to the man, by the way. The woman has not been created yet. And cultivate is probably not the best translation because it speaks of tilling the ground, and this would not happen until when? After the fall. And what cultivate means actually is this, serving and keeping. By the way, it's what we'll do in the garden city in heaven. We will serve the Lord. So what was Adam's work? Well, he did what a gardener would do. He tended to the magnificent garden. And so we see that work is a noble act. It's always been dignified. God created the universe through the work of his hands. 
He's still working in the wonders of redemption. He upholds the whole of the creation by the word of his power. And if God worked, shouldn't his creation, who is made in his image, work too? But this work is different from our experience of work. Because work in the Garden of Eden, as I said last week, expends very little energy. It never makes us weary. It always brings us delight and blessing because Eden was a place of delight and blessing. I mean, think about that for a moment. Have you ever worked a job that left you weary? Raise your hand. I certainly have. Okay. Have you ever worked a job you didn't enjoy? Okay. Yep. Work in the Garden of Eden expends no energy, it never makes us weary, and always brings us delight and blessing. I mean, did you know that that was the result of the fall of man? That work was never originally intended or designed to be physically exhausting and void of enjoyment. I remember very vividly, I could see the picture in my mind. It was a hot summer day in 1989. I pulled up to our driveway as my dad did. We both got home from work. He's in a suit and tie. He's a businessman. I was doing construction for the money. Okay? We both got out of our cars at the same time. I'm here. His car is here. And it's hot. Okay? And I'm covered in dust. And I'm just physically tired. I'm also doing the, the job for the money because I don't like that kind of work. I just didn't know at the time. I just really didn't enjoy it. But I did it for the money. Okay? He is tired from work, but he enjoys his work. But who was more tired? Me. Because I was physically weary and I had the drain of not enjoying my work. Now imagine that didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. You didn't get physically tired and you enjoyed your work because it's a place of joy and pleasure and delight. So the, that type of stuff in our world, it's a result of the fall of man. Work was never originally designed to be physically exhausting and void of enjoyment. That's why I always counsel people to find work that you enjoy and it never works work a day in your life. So before the fall, work was a noble part of man's life in the Garden of Eden. And so man was to subdue and rule the earth, which of course included the Garden of Eden. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers. He was to cultivate and keep the garden. But there was one more thing man was to do in the Garden of Eden. He had to obey God. And to prove this, Man was to pass a test. Never eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he does, he will die. And that's really the last point here, the test. Because the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And God wanted man to learn that obedience brought life and blessing, because Eden was a place of what? Life and blessing. You are to be Eden, by the way, in one sense, to this world. 
life and blessing. Disobedience, man had to learn, brought death and curses. In order to do this, he put in the garden a test to determine man's love, man's loyalty, and man's satisfaction to what God had provided. Man, think about this, he could enjoy the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but one. But one. So in the Garden of Eden, was, there was just one restriction. Man had no reason to disobey him or doubt his word or resent his sovereignty. If man did choose to disobey God and eat from the one forbidden tree, he would die. Now the phrase, you will surely die, is actually translated, and you're probably going to want to write this down, dying you shall surely die. Dying you shall surely die. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if he says truly, truly, what does that mean? It's important, remember it? Dying, you shall surely die. I've explained to you what that means. It means man would immediately die spiritually to God, and immediately his physical body would begin to decay and be prone to disease and aging, and eventually man would physically die. That's why Adam didn't immediately die. He died about, I think it was like 930 years old. But he began to physically die the moment he just chose to disobey God. You want to know what happened to his body? Well, Richard Gunther explains this. I did not know this. I think this is fascinating. So science has found that death is a process that begins at conception. At conception. Within every cell of the end of the DNA strand are small pieces called teleomeres, T-E-L-O-M-E-R-E-S. I have a picture of them. I didn't put it up there, but they're called telomeres. And at each division of the cell, a telomere is lost. Eventually, all the telomeres are gone, and the cell dies. Thus, dying, you shall die, is literally fulfilled. When he chose to disobey, in his cells, that became activated. And eventually, Adam and all humanity and Eve, they all, we begin to die. So when you are born in sin, it means you're born in death. Even at conception, the moment of life, you're already starting to die. All because of the disobedience of one man. It's actually two. It's Eve, but Adam is responsible. Now, last week I told you that the Garden of Eden was a place with an abundant and consistent water supply to feed the plants and trees and the birds and the fish and the land animals. And that this means that there was, they were never short of water. If they thirsted, they could drink abundantly. So almost no thirst in the paradise that God created. It was a place overflowing with food, a variety of vegetables and fruit beyond the capabilities of man's imagination. And the quality of the vegetables and fruit, imagine eating fruit that is not subject to the curse of Adam, I said. They were riper and sweeter and filled with more nutrients 
than we could ever dream of anything tasting. The best dessert we'll taste in a few minutes would never compare to them. There's also no weeds battling for the nutrients that came from the ground. Man did not tire in the Garden of Eden because the earth gave freely in its produce. He was not toiling by the sweat of his brow, so his labor was minimal. He was not a farmer doing the back-breaking work of tilling the soil and cleaning, clearing out unwanted growth that competes with crops and planting seeds and watering and reaping. He simply tended to the garden, pruning branches, maybe moving a few plants or trees here and there, letting stuff grow and thrive. He was living in a temperate environment. He could be unclothed, meaning that his body was not exerting energy to keep itself warm or cool. He was not living in fear of having to protect himself and his family from wild animals and poisonous reptiles. He was not living in fear to protect himself from violent men seeking to kill him or harm him or his family. He only knew perpetual peace. And today we learn that the Garden of Eden was only full of the most magnificent trees, trees that were pleasing to the sight, such as towering cedars and cypresses and something called a plane tree. It was only full of trees that were good for food in varieties that are beyond our imagination. There was even a tree with supernatural power called the tree of life that if you ate of its fruit, you would what? Live forever. The Garden of Eden was a place overflowing with minerals, precious jewels of the highest quality, such as the ruby, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, turquoise, emerald, and gold, and so on. And not only was it beautiful to look at, it was also pleasant to smell with the abundance of the resin bedillium. There was a mountain in the Garden of God, God, in the Garden of Eden called the Mountain of God. And from this mountain, it is possible that water flowed down from it, from underground water sources that fed into four large and long rivers. The Garden of Eden was massive in size as long as the rivers flowed. And the work God gave man was not tiresome, but enjoyable. Adam would never come home exhausted from physical labor or drained from working a job he didn't enjoy. All man had to do to enjoy and delight in the special garden was live with one restriction. Think about that. Just one restriction. If he obeyed God and passed one test, never eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he surely die, he would live in the Garden of Eden forever, enjoying the vast riches of the creation of God and continue an unbroken fellowship with his creator. That is the Garden of Eden. Unfortunately, we know how the story goes. The man and woman chose to disobey God and suffer the consequences, death and curses. I just want to close this sermon with a quote from Warren Wearsbury. It sums up the sermon perfectly. It says, Bible history begins, he writes, with a beautiful garden in which man sinned. But the story ends with a glorious garden city in Revelation 21 and 22, in which there will be no sin. What brought about the change? A third garden in Gethsemane, where Jesus surrendered to the Father's will and went forth to die on a cross 
for the sins of the world. And that's what lay ahead for us. A garden city. And so I want you to just think about this question this week. What does a garden Eden tell you about God? Because it was one special garden. Amen? Okay. Let's stand up. I'm going to pray for the food. We won't close with the song, Frank. It's in light of the time. Okay? You guys awake? Are you hungry? All right. We pray for the food, and you're dismissed to go enjoy the best that we can give you in this current earth. Father, thank you for this time and for this food we're about to eat. Thank you for what we learned about you and about your garden. Lord, remind us of the, the future garden city that awaits us, of a river of, of water, of life that flows through this city, of the gold that is just so abundant, and that you, our inheritance, you are there for us, and we shall see you face to face. No more sin, no more crying or mourning, no more pain or suffering. Just fellowship with you and serving you. And Lord, bless this food we're about to eat. Use it to nourish our bodies. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Enjoy.